But we're going to be continuing, as you've guessed, in our series on revival. Last week, we introduced what revival meant. We defined it. And then we looked at the idea of prayer. And we talked about how prayer is the kindling of the fire of revival. That this is what produces revival. Like, obviously, it's God, but he, it's the kindling that God breathes his breath upon, his fire upon, that burns and ignites us and changes us. And the idea of prayer is so vast. It's so large that one uh, measly little sermon is not going to do it justice. So we're going to be continuing to look at the idea of prayer today, not specifically of how you're praying, but more on the subject of seeking the Lord. And we're going to be doing that by looking at a familiar passage in Luke. It should be familiar to you because we closed our sermon with it last week, but it's also familiar to you because it's summarized often in churches as the ask, seek, and knock passages in Luke 11. So grab your Bibles or turn them on, whatever you do, and head on over to Luke 11, and we'll be picking up there in just a moment. But as we look at Luke 11, verses 9 and on, we tend to look at them in very limited ways. And, 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 I, and I want you to look at it certainly as it relates to prayer this morning, but I also want to look at it as it relates to revival, how God is longing to revive his people. So if you have your Bibles, let's pick up reading. It will be on the screen, but can I just encourage you for a moment, go on my soapbox, bring a Bible to church with you. Use a digital one, a physical one. It's important to have the word of God before you. I could change all the words on the screen if I wanted to and lead you astray, okay? It's important to be in the word of God. So let's read. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if he has asked for a fish, uh, sorry, if, among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen. What a powerful passage we have and a promise we have. But I have a question for you. How many of you have played the game hide-and-seek before? All right. It's a classic game. This game hide-and-seek has been around forever. If you don't know what it is, it's very hard to understand. So listen closely. One person hides and the rest of them seek for that person. Okay? I know. Very difficult, thrilling game. But it's a classic game. But I think and there's a sense that many Christians understand that seeking the Lord is a lot like hide-and-seek. Meaning that God is hiding himself from you and he's waiting for you to seek him and find him. And in general, I don't think that's true. In general, I think that God is, actually, is not in the business of hiding himself from you and you seeking him. In fact, I think God is in the business of revealing himself to you. Amen? Amen? Like, this is the God of the universe revealing himself. Let's get excited about that. He reveals himself in his creation, for example, in the mountains, in the sky, in the oceans, in the animal, animals. God is revealing himself, Romans says, to everyone, and nobody has an excuse. He reveals himself in things like your conscience and your logic and your reasoning. Uh, he even goes beyond that, and he reveals himself in great detail and in great specificity in his word. 
And and he details for us what he does, who he is, his plan of redemption, his gospel hope for sinners like us. He has revealed himself in his word. But he has most perfectly revealed himself in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint, the exact representation of God the Father. If you see the Son, guess what? You have seen the Father in Christ. We see God plainly. The problem is not then that God is hiding himself from us, but rather that we are hiding ourselves from God. We hide from God, and we have been doing so since Genesis 3. Remember when Adam and Eve were hiding? And he says, where are you? And they're ashamed. We've been hiding as humanity ever since Genesis 3. So when we begin today to talk about what it means to seek God, it's important to keep in mind that it's not God who is hidden, okay? Keep that in your mind. And now you have to seek him out. Rather, it's you who has gone astray. It's you who have hidden yourself from God. And in your seeking God now and you're seeking his nearness, it's actually a return to him because God never ran away. Even when Mary and Joseph left Jesus behind, they are the ones who had to turn around and make their track back to Jesus, right? So if the parents of Jesus had to return to the nearness of Jesus, we do as well at times. Now, that was horrible hermeneutics. Don't use that ever. Um, And as we consider the subject of revival today, we are going to look at several passages. And the principle, the main point of the sermon that is critical for you to keep at the forefront of your mind is this. Those who seek the Lord find revival. It's not those who seek revival find revival because many people seek revival and they never find it. All they become is enslaved to something that we defined as revivalism last week where they're trying to reproduce things that have happened in the past. If you follow these order of things, if you do this just right, God will pour out revival, right? We, we quoted Charles Finney himself from his book who says, revival is not a divine thing. It's rather just you using the right means, meaning you manipulating people to make revival come. Well, that's not true revival. That is revivalism. But those who seek the Lord, those who truly seek God, they find revival. And before we flesh out what seeking the Lord is, for the sake of the series and your understanding, as some missed last Sunday too, and and, and if you're like me, you just forget, Uh, we need to just do a quick refresher on what revival is. Because when it comes to the subject of revival, there are so many misconceptions, mispractices of what revival is. And last week we used this classic definition from a man named Richard Owen Roberts, and he said that revival is an extraordinary work of God that produces extraordinary results. And remember, what makes the work of the Holy Spirit extraordinary is not that the Holy Spirit's doing something new, something different, or something crazy. Rather, because the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything new, different, or crazy, he has defined for us what he does, and he sticks to that. The Bible tells us what the Holy Spirit does, which is conviction of sin, regeneration of dead people to life, repentance, faith, sanctification, guidance, filling, all of those things. So the Holy Spirit does the same thing he always does in the life of his people, and what makes revival extraordinary is not that he's doing anything different, new, or crazy, but rather it's the Holy Spirit doing what the Holy Spirit always does, but just on an accelerated level, on a greater intensity in a short period of time. Revival is punctuated sanctification. This is what makes it so extraordinary. And again, 
the results are not different from what the results would normally be produced in a church service. It's just that they're coming at a greater harvest. So if revival is the work of God in a believer's life, or in a collection of believers' lives, like in a church, what then is happening to those believers? What then is happening to the church? And you can think about it in very general terms. When God brings revival to you, what he is doing is he's warming your cold heart. Some of us find ourselves in positions where we're spiritually cold. We don't have this warmth, this spiritual affection and fervor that we once had for God or for the things of God, be it prayer, be it his word, be it worship, or gathering together in a church with other believers. Whatever it is, we have grown cold in. And revival is God warming the cold heart of the person who has grown cold. Or it's also the refreshing of the weary. Some of us in this place today, we're weary because of circumstances. We're weary because of affliction. We're weary because of temptations or failures. And we grow weary and weak. And we find ourselves lacking strength to do what God has called us to do. We know what we're supposed to be doing, but we're just too tired to do so. Because X, Y, Z, whatever it was in our life. And we need God to refresh us or to re-strengthen us. It's a stirring of the complacent as well. He is firing up. He is stirring the heart. The soul of a person who has become relatively disinterested in God or the things of God. And, and God has called them back home. Right? He is, he, the revival is calling the wandering brother or sister home to God. Or maybe you're more familiar with the word backslider. The backslider is the person who instead of going forward with the grace of God has turned around and has started going the other direction away from God. And some of you are right there right now. Some of you are not looking to Christ. You're not looking to obey Christ. You have turned around and you're looking at your old life and you're going, you know what, I could use some of that. Yeah, that seems fun again. Don't worry, Jesus. I'm not going to go too far. I'm just going to dip my toe back into my old life. And we coax ourselves into doing this by saying, well, God's a forgiving God. He's not angry. He's going to love me anyways. So we start telling ourselves it's okay to go for something lesser than God. He'll be fine with it. And some of you are just going the wrong way. And that's what revival's for, for all these categories, for people like that, which we've all been there. If you're there, we've all been there. We've all been the prodigal son at points in our lives. And it's God bringing you, the wandering brother or sister, home. It's an awakening of those, as we said last week, who have fallen asleep in their faith. So that is revival in general. But what are the physical effects that happen in somebody's life or in, church, in the church when revival comes, when we are truly seeking the Lord? Well, I want to give you seven effects of revival on your life or in this church. Number one is that when God sends revival, when God is reviving someone, faith begins to grow. Faith grows. You can have real faith, and I hope you do. I hope you all have faith in Jesus, that he is your only hope, that you depend on him, that you believe that Christ came and lived the perfect life that you could never live, that he died the death that you should have died, and that he rose again with healing in his wings and gave you salvation and eternal life. I pray that you believe that your only peace in this life is found through Christ Jesus. And I hope you believe that, I hope you stand on that, and I hope you fight for that. And I hope this is true for you, but I also know that for many of us, we believe all these things, but we believe them weakly. We believe them poorly, 
or we believe them incompletely. We don't believe perfectly. Nobody does. Nobody here believes perfectly. But some of you are on a greater measure and you're painfully aware, aware of how weak your faith is, how frail your faith is, how fragile it is. And you have a lot of doubts and you have a lot of questions. And instead of bringing those questions to God and wrestling with them and then submitting yourself to his word and his answer, the problem is, is we find a lot of answers, but we just tell ourselves they're not good enough. But instead of submitting yourself to those answers so your faith will grow, you just continue on in your wandering, in your struggling, in your question. And when your faith grows, it doesn't mean that you're going to be confident in your ignorance. That's not what faith means. Like, hey, I can't get the answer to this, so I'm just going to believe past it. That's not what faith means. What it means is that you will be confident in what God has revealed in his word. The answer you find, you are confident in it. And where he doesn't speak, you learn to be content. Faith grows when God is reviving the heart. But not only does faith grow, but secondly, Christ becomes precious. The person, the family, the church that is revived, Christ becomes precious in everything to them. He becomes preeminent and exalted in everything we talk about. And he becomes the most important thing in our lives. And we recognize that Jesus is God in flesh, but manifested specifically to save sinners like us. Christ is our only hope in life and death. He is our only one who, who, who could have made the perfect atonement for sinners while remaining completely sinless. He is the only one who could be the perfect priest for us and intercede for us. He is the only one who could be the perfect king for us and rule over us. And he is the only one who could be the perfect prophet for us and speak words over us that we can actually understand and be transformed by. Jesus becomes precious, and when he does, we don't take him for granted. When we are revived, rather, we don't take for granted. We marvel, we talk about him, and we share him with everybody. We become evangelists. Like, uh, like on, on one level, people who struggle with evangelism, the one cure to that is that you just marvel more like God because where your heart is, where your love is, it's easy to talk about that. I can deduce where people hold their hearts in a matter of a few minutes in a conversation because it's what's spewing out of their mouth. Money, 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 money. Goals, 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 goals. Career, 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 career. All of this is coming out. I'm not saying these things are bad, but are you marveling at Christ? Are you easier to talk about what you do and how much you make than you are to talk about the Savior who has saved you and who has died for you? When the heart is revived, we easily become evangelists. We don't care about having the right lingo. We just want everyone to experience Christ because Christ becomes precious to us. So when there is revival, faith grows, Christ becomes precious, and sin becomes offensive. Now, I know a lot of us, to us, sin is not offensive to ourselves, our own sin. Like other people's sin, that's offensive. We hate other people's sin, but our own sin we tolerate it. We don't mind it. We get offended because people are sinning differently than we are, and we begin to focus on the speck that's in their eye rather than the bulging log that is sticking out of your own eye. And the revived heart is offended by sin, not only because it recognizes that sin is a breaking of God's law, but also because sin to a revived heart becomes odious to a Christian. 
It becomes smelly, stinking. It's odious because you can't see your sin without seeing the stretched out bloody arms that were nailed to the cross to die for your sins and to forgive you of your sins. And you so more willingly go to your sin than you do to Christ. It becomes odious to us. And when we get revived, we see the price in full, true completeness of what Christ did on the cross. And it makes our sin smell. When Christ becomes precious, your sin becomes odious. The revived heart, the revival that happens in someone's heart who has believed will change them utterly. They won't so willingly go to other wells of satisfaction. They will run to Christ. But we're going to flesh this out more on February 12th in a sermon called How to Kill Sin. So faith grows. Christ becomes precious. Sin becomes offensive. And Scripture is cherished. Because it is, it is the perfect revelation of God. And it's the means by which God uses for us to know God. It is cherished because it's the one of the primary instruments that God uses to accomplish change in the lives of his people. We are sanctified and changed through God, the Holy Spirit, using the word of God to make us into people that he wants us to be, that he has called us to be, to conform us into the image of Christ. The fifth effect of revival is love will increase. The heart that is revived or the church that is revived is marked by love. Love for God and love for others. And by love, I don't mean a cold sense of honor born out of duty. I think we Christians are bad for that. We say, well, I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it because I love God and he called me to do it. And we get this cold sense of uh, honor and duty born out of this. And I'm not saying sometimes we don't have to force ourselves to do things, but what I'm talking about is this love that grows out of a response to God and obedience that is born out of affection, right? We keep his commandments not to earn God's love, but we keep his commandments because God has already loved us. And because he loved us, we love him. And we keep his commandments because of our love. It's a totally different picture, and we love others as well, like our neighbors, with hearts of compassion, because our neighbors, even though they might be annoying, are made in the image of God. And Jesus died for them. And we know God's love that he showed to you and me when we were still strangers, when we were still enemies. So we are moved to love our neighbors, our friends, our families who are not yet Christians and the Christians because they are made in the image of God. The sixth effect that will increase is prayer. Whenever there is revival historically, you can read all the accounts of revival in history. And one thing you will notice right away is that prayer is hot. Like people just can't get enough of prayer. We call prayer meetings here and it's like pulling teeth. And when they get there, they talk about six hours about their problems. And then they spend two minutes praying. Not so in revival. Prayer is hot. People can't get enough of it. They gathered any time they could. Shifts done at the factory. Let's get together. Let's pray. I'm just sitting with my family in my home. Let's pray. Prayer is hot. And they prayed joyfully, willingly. They went to the throne of grace. And they did so joyfully, which is the seventh effect that increases, that joy will intensify and flourish. 
There is a new joy that is born not out of our circumstances, but is grounded in our Savior. There is a joy that cannot be taken from us despite the afflictions or needs. There is a joy that becomes dominant in our lives. The revived heart is a joyous heart. And this is what it looks like to be revived. And the best thing that I can tell you to do is to go back and read some of the historical accounts of revival. Like some of the accounts I read this week actually moved me to tears of God moving in his people. For example, let's just look at one from 1815 in Connecticut. I'm just going to read you some of the sections. And these are just collections of testimonies of, uh, of what was happening in people's cities during the revival. And this was actually published in their local newspaper. This is where I got it from. So here's uh, from the revival in 1815 in Connecticut. Christians generally began to feel the effects of the gracious visitation. This is what they called revival back then. And their meetings were more frequent, frequent, full, and solemn and interesting. It was astonishing to see the change that took place in two weeks. Saints were filled with transports of joy, and sinners were pricked in the hearts and began to anxiously require what they must do to be saved. Hundreds flocked to places of worship. The the darkest nights, the most unfavorable weather and unpleasant travel, come on, church, right, did not hinder their assembling together, though they were meeting every night in the week. Do you hear that? Every night in the week. Here's the thing when revival happens. We just tend to have more meetings. And do you know why we tend to have more meetings? Because Sunday's not enough. For the revived heart. People were not satisfied. They wanted more. They wanted to pray more. They wanted to hear the word of God preached more. And they hungered for it. There's actually accounts where they're banging on the doors. And the pastor was forced to open the doors for people to flood in. Like he's just wanted to have dinner. And people are filling the church. Like they couldn't stop them from coming. The service is no different. They're not doing anything special. They didn't bring out the lasers and smoke machines. Right? This was 1815. That's why. But no, I'm kidding. They, <laughs> they just didn't do that. It was just an average service. But here's the difference is what was happening. The hearts and minds of the people were actually connecting with the word of God. And they were like a dried up sponge that just keeps soaking up the water. It's an amazing thing. Let's continue with 1815. It says, though they were meeting every night in the week, they were so crowded that people had to stand at the doors and the windows in order to hear the words of life. And some had to go away who could not get near to hear. Churches, we start to believe this lie that, hey, once we get about 80% full, people are going to leave. Not when God is moving. Amen? They're going to hang out these windows. I don't know how, but they're going to. Okay? Like when God is moving, people will pack in. It's not, I mean, we might have to turn them away. So uh, just, a, just a thought of mine. But anyways, people are hanging in. And many young people who had been vain and thoughtless about eternity were now seen with their heads bowed down and trembling with fear. Some of the hearts that were the most hardened sinners seemed to melt before the fire of many who once would not have been thought to be serious of the greatest consideration were not constrained to renounce their sinful ways, to cry unto God 
for salvation. There was now great joy in that city and the region around, and parents were often seen rejoicing over a son or daughter who was hopefully made a subject of grace. This work continued for about three months. And that's important to, to stop and talk about because revival is periodical. It's temporal. It's not something that's going to last for years and years and years and years. It doesn't last long. It's not supposed to. What it's supposed to do is God is accomplishing something great in a short period of time. He's punctuating the sanctification. He's moving his church forward very rapidly and very fastly. The problem is with revivalism is that we want it to last every single day. And we start making ourselves enslaved to the experience rather than to God's moving this work continued for about three months in which time not less than 130 people experienced the renovating influence of the Spirit. Now, I know how many churches count today in many ministries. If you just twitch in the seat, hey, you're saved, right? They just get really gun-happy, trigger-happy about salvations. It's kind of like sneezing at an auction. Now you're walking home with a $1,000 painting, right? So we're, we're so quick to give people confidence of their salvation if they just say a prayer and raise their hand. But that's not so in these settings. These people took salvation very, very seriously. They had people who would go follow up with these people in Sure that there was true fruit of the Spirit showing in their lives. And what we see in three months is 130 authentic believers born out of the revival in Connecticut. Amen? Like, we get excited if one person comes to the Lord in five years. I'm talking 130 people in three months. True salvations. That's something to get excited about. The article goes on and says, The greatest number of those who professed Christ in this revival were under 25 years of age. Not one is known in this society of being a subject of this work who is over the age of 50. Now, in this case, they didn't have any occurrence of someone being 50 years and older converted. But that's just this one church in this one context. When we see revival come, it hits every generation, every demographic. It just hits everybody in general. But one thing that is true about every single revival that we have information on is this. It hits the youth the most. It significantly impacts the youth, the young people. God gets them. And he saves them. This is why Tyler's job is probably arguably one of the most important jobs in this church. Because he is training up young people before they get hardened and just get used to sitting in their seats. And they're willing to do what Lord has called them to do because they're not affected by the hardness of life yet. Some are. But this is important. But God gets everyone in revival, but we do see a greater number of the young people coming. So that's what revival is and what it looks like. And so if revival is the extraordinary work of God that produces extraordinary results, and if it's God's work and not our work, then what is our role in revival? Because we all need to be revived. So what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to seek the Lord. Because if you seek the Lord, you will find revival. We don't seek revival, but we seek the Lord. So what does it mean to seek the Lord? The word seek in general means attempt to find or locate someone or experience. But to seek the Lord means to pursue a deeper knowledge and relationship and experience of God. To seek the Lord is to pursue him. A deeper experiential knowledge and relationship. 
Even going back to our text in Luke 11, the context in Jesus is Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. And he's telling them to seek, to knock, and to ask. And God will not withhold the Holy Spirit from those who seek him, from those who ask him. So we even see Jesus commanding that we seek. And the Bible is full of commands that we seek. And it's important that we highlight these commands because I know for many Christians, we get in our mind this one verse we read that says, well, no, no, God says nobody, Paul says nobody seeks God in Romans. And if you're a good Calvinist, that's your favorite verse. You know, it's mine because I'm a good Calvinist, but uh, no, I'm kidding. But uh, uh, I'm not joking about the Calvinist stuff, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but Proverbs 8:17 says, I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently find me. It's not only a command, but what we see here in Proverbs that it's, it's almost as God is saying, hey, I respond to this type of action. If you seek me, you will find me. Look at Jeremiah 29, 12 to the beginning of 14. It says, uh, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and will, I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, look at the beginning of verse 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. He's declaring that. Or Psalm 61 or 63 verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in dry and weary land uh, there is no water. Or Psalm 119 um, verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. What amazing verses, and there's so many more. And these are promises, the common promise in all these verses that if we seek the Lord, we will find him. We're not going to find a scorpion. We're not going to find a rock. We're not going to find anything else but God. And the reason you're sitting here right now is not by mistake. The reason you're sitting here is that God has put you where you are in your life and on your life journey, the difficulties you're facing, or even the favor you're facing, for all of that is for you to seek the Lord and to find him. This is the ultimate reason why you are where you are in your life. It doesn't mean that everything in your life is going to be okay. It doesn't mean everything in your life is going to be groovy and awesome. But it means that everything in your life has a purpose. It's not meaningless, but it's working together for a peculiar glory for you in eternity. And what it's designed to do is to show you of your need for God here. And it prepares you to seek him. The scripture clearly commands us to seek the Lord. But there's this idea that seeking the Lord is something that is denied or rejected in Scripture. So let's go to that famous passage that me as a Calvinist I love so much. And this is, it's found in Romans 3, quoting from Psalms. Paul is teaching us the, 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 uh, the sinful state of humanity, including the moral, religious, even the Jewish people. He says in verse 10 of uh, 3, None is righteous, as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. And then what does he say? No one seeks for God. So how does Paul quote the Psalms saying no one seeks God because no one is righteous, but we just looked at a few different Psalms a moment ago and other scriptures demanding and commanding and showing us how to seek the Lord. How can Paul say this when God himself said in Jeremiah that if you seek me, I declare you will find me? So to make sense of this, we have to understand human nature and the forms of which seeking takes. So let me ask it this way. What does it mean that no one seeks after God? 
Well, in one sense, it means that no one seeks after God perfectly or purely, meaning anyone who seeks after the Lord will do so with mixed motives. So as a Christian, we want to seek the Lord because we want to glorify him, know him more, become more like him, and be a testimony of him to his world. Those are good motives, but it can also have mixed emotions. Maybe we sinned a lot that week and we're feeling a little guilty, so we're like, well, i got to seek him more to make up for that and earn his love again. Or I, I want some fire insurance, so I have to seek him some more to get close to him because I got burned a little and I didn't like that. And those are lesser reasons to seek the Lord. Maybe not sinful, but not proper. They're mixed motives, which makes the seeking imperfect. But there's another sense that we can say no one seeks God unless God is at work in us, moving us to do so. And this is where I stand in my theology, and this is where the Bible stands as well, and this is what Paul is saying in Romans 3. Paul is saying that there's nothing purely good in anybody, regardless of your heritage, morality, or religion. In terms of true goodness and pureness, only God has that. And we have chosen as humanity to sin. We have become corrupted in our own hearts, and we will not seek after God with an incorrupted heart, not purely or perfectly. And we will only seek after God if he steps in, if he gives us a new heart, if he gives us the desires, which is his grace. It turns our hearts towards us, meaning none of us would have sought the Lord if it wasn't for us, him, sorry, pricking his, our hearts, getting in our business and softening our heart and hearts to be able to seek him. This is the beauty of the Lord. He knows that we would never seek him. He knows that we would never go after him. So he gives us the desire to do so. And if he didn't do that, we would still be enemies of God, seeking to destroy him, but not seeking to worship him. This is the beauty of the Lord. He knows we would never seek him, and he gives us the desire. So we must confess within humility that our seeking is only possible because God made it possible. And if we seek him with mixed motives, which many of us do, including me at times, God can still accomplish great things with that. So the question is, as I prepare to close, what does it mean to seek the Lord actively? You seek the Lord through means of grace. And we talked about the means of grace as instruments and tools by which we uh, uh, get to know God more by where he changes us. And, and we're talking about things like scripture, prayer, worship, and fellowship. And if you just remove those things, a lot of bad stuff starts to happen. You remove fellowship. You start to get depressed, anxious, lonely. You don't have other believers around you. If you remove the word, you start to wander and he's not near. If you remove prayer, you begin to get anxious because as Philippians says... It, you know, it tells us to combat against anxiety with prayer. That's how we battle prayer. And we begin to look at these things. The scripture is the instrument of God, how he changes people, how he sanctifies a soul. Because God is not after behavior modification. Right? So if we remove scripture, if we remove fellowship, we get depressed, we move prayer, we grow cold. If we remove scripture, we start to wander. And, and the church has wandered for so long, for so many years, right? The church has been so focused on behavior modification. You shall not do that. You shall not do that because I can't do that. You can't do that. But God's not interested in behavior modification. God's not interested in the slightest because behavior modification is easy. You don't need the Holy Spirit for behavior modification. All you need is a little legalism, some fear, and the pastor can crush his congregation. But character transformation is a divine thing that only God can do. So how does God change character then? 
It's the Holy Spirit using his scripture received by faith to change us into the image of Jesus, truly, legitimately, and usually slowly. Sanctification is a process that takes our lives. But in revival, sanctification is this little sprint. It's this punctuated sanctification that accelerates us quickly. It's happening more rapidly. So you can take prayer away, you can take scripture away, and you begin to lose out on things. You begin to come cold and dry. So we should leverage those two things. We should schedule these things in our calendar. It's not legalistic to schedule reading your Bible or praying because if you don't set your calendar, somebody else will. So remind yourself to pray. We have many resources, and we shouldn't be lacking in these areas. And worship, if we remove worship or corporate worship, what, uh, what we're removing is one of the most important elements because corporate worship is where they all come together, the means of grace where we all get to come together, fellowships together, prayers together, scriptures together. All of them start to come together, and historically, God has most commonly brought about revival in a gathered church. So we must leverage those things. But as we seek the Lord, we must also recognize that we will be up against opposition. When revival comes, we will, we will go against opposition from three areas. From the world, from the church, and from the devil. The first one is pretty obvious. The world gets pretty uncomfortable when the church is revived because we begin to tell more people about Jesus. And when we tell more people about Jesus, more people get saved, which means there, there are all these sinful vices that have a hold in our town begin to go on the decline. And where we see this most impact is places like bars, gentlemen clubs, pornography in industries, and et cetera, et cetera. These things begin to go down in their use because so many people are getting saved and the world doesn't like that because they're losing money. So they begin to fight back and push back with violence, temptation, with politics. But the world can exert as much pressure on you as it wants, but it's the least scary form of opposition on this list. The second form of opposition we see in revivals from the church, and this happens all the time when revival hits a broader scale. It happened in the 1700s when Jonathan Edwards was preaching and the Great Awakenings were happening. We had the old lights and the new lights, and the old lights were getting mad at, uh, at the revival, saying it wasn't a work of God because there were some weird things happening and there were some theological things. They had some legitimate concerns on some of the broader aspects on the peripherals, but really what it came down to was these old lights were comfortable in a church that wasn't calling out their sin, that wasn't proving them, moving them closer to Christ. And when revival comes, sin became odious. And then they started going, well, I can't get away with this anymore. The church is holding me to account. And they started to fight against it. So we have opposition from the church, but the third one is opposition from the devil. And this one is most concerning for me because many of us are not ready for this. A lot of us say we believe there's a devil, but we don't live like there's a devil, and we don't pray like there's a devil. Let me flesh this out. Jonathan Edwards, one of the main people used in the Great Awakening in the 1740s in Northampton. When revival broke out, Jonathan Edwards was just doing his thing. He was seeking the Lord. He was praying and preaching faithfully, and God began to do his thing. And the, and the revival starts to kick in, and the devil begins to oppose the work, and we see specifically this happening in a man named Joseph Hawley. Joseph Hawley was Jonathan Edwards' uncle. In the midst of revival, Joseph Hawley becomes down and starts to deal with the first time in life with depre depressing thoughts. He was beginning to be attacked by the devil in his weakest points. And he began to isolate himself when he was struggling like a lot of us do when we suffer because we're dumb. 
I'm just going to call it what it is. When you're suffering, it's dumb to isolate yourself. You need the community that God has put you in. You can't do it on your own. But Holly begins to seclude himself, and he begins to deal with these depressing attacks from the devil, which he details in a book, uh, in a notebook, saying that, you know, the devil was whispering in his ear that he's not a good Christian, he should just kill himself. And unfortunately, he ended up taking his own life in the midst of this revival. But what's even more concerning is that several other people in that same church start to go to Jonathan Edwards, their pastor, and he says, hey, we're hearing voices from the devil and he's detailing to us how we should kill ourselves. Like he, it goes into great detail, which I, I will spare you of. And his, his congregation begins to struggle with depression out of nowhere. And the pastor's bewildering what's going on. So many becoming depressed and suicidal. And obviously there's a place for mental illness in the church and the frailty of the human mind. Don't hear me wrong, but also make no mistake about it. When revival is happening and you're seeking the Lord, you can expect opposition. From the church, from people, the ones you're supposed to trust, and from the devil. And it's absolutely critical that you begin to seek the Lord. And when you encounter opposition, you don't give up or quit or seclude yourself. And you don't relax the means of grace. You don't stop reading your Bible. You don't stop praying. You don't stop attending Sunday worship and, and, and gathering with believers. You press into those. I hear many people say, the more I try to follow Christ, it seems the harder it gets. And that's the point. Like, that's the devil's main tactic is to uh, avert you off the road. It's not when you start worshiping or when you start, uh, when you start worshiping God all the more and start living from the devil's going to leave you alone because now you're a super saint or something. No, he's going to double down on, the, on, the, on the, the temptation. I'm sorry to bust your bubble there, but that's the furthest thing from the truth. The devil leaves you alone when you're not following after Christ, when all you're doing is sitting in a church saying, bless me, bless me, Lord, but you're never giving out. The devil will leave you alone even when you're sitting in church Sunday after Sunday. So when you start to really seek the Lord and pour your heart, the devil will double down on temptation and affliction as the Lord allows. Because our fight is not against flesh and blood. The spirit world is not made up. Church, we must rid our minds of the Western way of thinking when it comes to the supernatural world. It is real. And the devil has come to kill, steal, and destroy you, not coming to hang out and tickle you. He's not coming to be your friend. So you can't seclude yourself and try to do it on your own. You can't ease up on the means of grace. You must persevere when you start to face temptation and, and opposition. Link arms with other believers and press on. Because what's the promise if you seek the Lord? What's the promise? You're going to find him. You will find the Lord. We all need revival because we are all frail and weak. We, church, must seek the Lord. And if we seek the Lord, FBC, we can expect opposition. But don't fret, friends. Because opposition is a sign of the nearness of revival. So if you do face opposition, lean into the means of grace. Don't seclude yourself. Link arms with your brothers and sisters. And if you're here and you're not a believer, come to Christ. As, as, as Paul said to the unbelievers in Acts, he says they're groping out and, 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 and hoping to find God. In your groping here today, the Lord is here. You have found him. Come to him and surrender to him.
God is saying this to you, and I'm saying it to you as well, that God has put you here for a reason, and it's so that you can seek him and you can find him. And Jesus says, if you seek him, you will find me. Why are you here but by God's grace to move you to seek? And if we seek God, we will find him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you for this ability to seek you that you've given us. And Lord, we don't want to take lightly the opposition that can come. We don't want to dumb down the attacks of the devil. We so often say, oh, come at me, devil. You can't touch me. I'm God's anointed. But Lord, how prideful that is. Father, may we link arms with each other. May we encourage one another. Father, when, when opposition arises against our seeking of you, Father, may we be our greatest allies and not enemies. May we as a church not seek opposition from each other. But Father, may we press on in unity, seeking the reviving influence of your Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.